0: Are you not
1: get busy living, or get busy dying.
0: All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Well, welcome to this week's edition of Taboo Talk with Jay Louder. Today we have a very compelling story. And quite honestly, it's a story that, well, as I said earlier, as we were talking, it's a story of terrible tragedy, and yet at the same time, it's a story of triumph. And it's a story that I think many people are going to relate to, maybe not in the exact same set of circumstances, but have been through a similar situation. And today's guest is Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Sandy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's
0: good to be here. Yeah, it's so good to have you. And for those of you listening, Sandy has written a book, and it's entitled, Let Me Pray With You. But it's not what you think. It's not let me, P-R-A-Y, as in pray, but it's P-R-E-Y, pray upon you. And that will all make sense as we begin to unwrap this story. But, Sandy, let's just start there. Let's just get a backdrop about you and a backdrop of everything that's unfolding in your life. Just kind of set the table for us, if you would.
1: Well, first, let me just say I'm, I'm married to my husband for 45 years. We have two grown children and two fairly well-behaved dogs. And my life at this point is in a good place. However, at one point in my life, I was in a very dark place. I was sexually abused by my youth pastor at the age of 16 shortly after I turned 16 our church hired this pastor he came with great credentials and had a, a background of doing really wonderful things in the church that he was in and so everyone was excited about having him come on board I as a teenager was very active in the church my parents were divorced and they didn't attend church but for me, it was a place that I found peace. It was a place that I just loved being. I taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I led retreats. So I, I think to say if the doors of the church were open, I was there. So when he arrived, it was one of those things where he certainly tapped into me to be one of the leaders. He began to spend a lot of the time with me and pay a lot of attention to me. He put me in charge of a lot of committees. And I, of course, not only loved the attention, but I felt like this was my way of serving God. One of the things that we did not know about him and that he revealed shortly after he arrived at our church is that one young teenager from his first church accused him of sexually inappropriate behavior. And she made this information known to the elders of our church. They chose not to um, pursue it. They felt he was sorry for what he had done. He promised he wouldn't do it again. And he seemed to be repentant, so they allowed him to continue as a youth pastor without giving any of this information out. Within six months of that accusation, he was kissing me in my home after a youth group meeting, and I was absolutely stunned. But as trauma does, I responded in a way to think that i have misunderstood that this was his way of showing appreciation he was the pastor and how could I accuse him of doing something he shouldn't be doing. And it was really kind of a quick, innocent kiss. It didn't, you know, so I had to justify it in some way. And that's what I did. And this grooming process of, you know, I babysat for his family. So he had the perfect opportunity to be alone with me. And this grooming of kissing me and hugging me kind of continued for a year until he had sex with me. And then I understood that this was wrong. And but, you know, he was telling me this was God's will and this was the way we were married in God's eyes. And this was my purpose in life was to help him in his ministry. I'm 16 years old, so I'm I'm confused. I'm trying to process this. And I did care about him and I did look up to him. And so it was easy for me in some ways to not look at it as something that was totally wrong, even though I knew it was in my mind. Um But then, of course, he started to tell me I couldn't tell anyone, that, you know, when anyone find out, it would be my fault. And no one was going to believe me. And, you know, I was having trouble believing that this was happening to me. Shortly after the sex started, um, it became very deviant sex. He became violent. He totally changed his personality. And at this point, I was feeling trapped. I, right, I now
0: hang on. Wow, this yeah. is so much to unpack, Sandy. So <laughs> let's go back just a little bit. Okay. Now, how old were you when this very first, this kiss that you mentioned about, how old were you when that took place?
1: 16.
0: 16 years of age. And, and he
1: was 30 and married with two children.
0: Oh, wow. He was 30 with two children. And, of course... What's ironic about this, and of course, we've seen this in the news here um, in the last year and a half, two years, where there have been several prominent leaders. There have been some denominations that have been facing allegations of sweeping things under the rug. And I know you're aware of that. It's been national news. And um, so, and, and there have been some major, major discussions and issues and criticisms, many of which are valid of churches and denominations and leadership, not doing anything about it. And, of course, that's what you mentioned. You said prior to um, this encounter that he had with you, this abusive encounter, I should say, he had already had some allegations against him at a previous church. And kind of goes back to, yeah. And had that have been addressed from the jump, then this whole situation wouldn't have happened to begin with, or at least you would like to think so. And the other thing that stands out to me is of all places that a person should feel like that it's a safe zone, you would like to think that that would be the church. And you would like to think as a parent that the one place that you could send your children, that you wouldn't have to worry about any issue in any way similar to this would be the safe zone of the church. And yet, and not only in your story, but again, as we've seen in the news, it's not been a safe zone for a lot of people. And I was just curious, as you were talking, as we're kind of digging into the weeds here and getting in the depths of the story, Sandy, tell me about, did you have a good, you know, relationship with your mom and dad? Did you come from a, a we'll believe in home, a, a Christian home?
1: I, no, I didn't. I did not. They were good people. They, they. But and my parents divorced when I was about seven. And that really, really traumatized me in a way that um, still to this day, you know, I, I, it's something that bothers me. I mean, this happened in the 60s, so no parents were divorced at that time or that I knew of. And so it stigmatized me in many ways. And I also did not see my dad very often during that time. So I did look at this pastor as a father figure. Um, I actually end up going to church because my neighbor friend asked me to go with her family. And that's how I started attending church. My mom did eventually join the church because of this pastor and how wonderful he seemed to be. And his sermons were so great. So that a lot of people started joining the church, including my my mom. And as you said, you know, this was back in the 70s. So this was when drugs and free love was happening and the hippie movement. And so to have her daughter involved in church was a relief. Right. This is where you would expect and hope that your children would end up. And so she was, you know, The radar wasn't there for her to suspect anything, but I was very, you know, I was on the Bible Bowl team, so I had a very deep spiritual life, and I was very ingrained in all of the church activities and the things that went on, and so it was easy for this pastor to tap into my vulnerability of being a a child of divorce and not seeing my dad very often to take advantage of that. And, And I tell victims, that's what they do. They target. They look for the vulnerable. They look for the person who's the weaker emotionally or who has issues in their life. And that's what makes us such easy prey.
0: Right. And that's the reason that I asked that question is where I was going with it was wondering if you felt like and again, this is in no way, shape or form issuing any responsibility to you. So don't misunderstand the question. But I was just wondering if maybe if there was maybe a severed or a fractured relationship between you and your father, if that might have led to maybe some of, you know, perceiving him as you mentioned, which really you already answered the question of kind of the father figure that you currently didn't have at the time.
1: Yes, And we also, you know, there was this complete trust in pastors prior to his arrival. I love the other youth pastor just as much as, you know, I, I babysat for his family. I also, whenever he asked me to do anything in the church, I was willing and ready to do that. So when this, this abuser came into our church, I didn't see any difference, only in that he was much more charismatic he was a much more dynamic personality. People were drawn to him. People wanted to please him. And I fell right into that with him. And of course, as I said, he then tapped into the resource of my being vulnerable to take advantage of me and and eventually abuse me. And as I said, the abuse then, you know, continued to be violent. It, It was a totally different kind of a Atmosphere, I should say that when he initially
0: came. Right. Well, and you use the word and it's it's such an effective description of these type of people, this grooming process of, of recognizing some vulnerabilities. And of course, at that age, and, and my wife was sexually abused and it began at a young age like that. And so I know that that's a, a common denominator with predators like him where they're on the prowl, they're looking for prey, and they're able to decipher maybe some of these vulnerabilities. And, of course, at, at the age that you were, especially in that time frame that you were in, I mean, this would have been a emotional, mental overload of trying to process this and understand what's going on. And then you said as it progressed, it went from... This, I mean, of course, the grooming process continued, but you said it, it, it turned into something violent. Do you mean that—are you talking about violence sexually, or are you talking about just that he was beating you? Explain well, that.
1: I wouldn't say that he was beating me. I, he hit me um, more than once. He pushed me out of a slow-moving car. Uh, he would— when, whenever there were some times when I would go to him and say, You know, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm feeling guilty. Plus, this was like, these were my teenage years, and I wasn't doing the fun things that everybody else was doing because I was under his control and under his thumb. So, you know, it's part unhappiness, but it was also a lot of guilt. And when I would go to him and I just say, I can't do this anymore, he would respond in one of two ways. One, he would con- put on the you know the act that oh he needs me, he loves me, he cares about me, I can't leave him. You know, then I would start to feel guilty about that, and then he would say we were married in God's eyes and this was God's will, or he would respond by pushing me up against the wall, grabbing me, telling me that there's no way I was ever going to be able to leave him and to stop thinking about it, and then he would say to me, you're no longer a virgin, so no one else is going to love you. And I eventually came to believe that. I I this abuse went on for 5 years. So by the end of, of the five years, I was totally under his control and felt such self-loathing. I, I, didn't, I hated myself. I felt I had low self-esteem. I truly believed that this was my life and that this would only end when he said it was over.
0: Right. I, I assume that there's probably some people... And I, I think I know the answer to this question because again, from my wife's story that began at an earlier age and continued when it got as she got older. And I remember when I first found out about this in our dating relationship, and I understand it now, but at the time it was very difficult for me as she got older. And and I asked her very sensitively, obviously it wasn't an accusatory statement, but I was trying to understand. I said, Missy, as you got older, I mean I get it when you were really young. But as you were getting older, why didn't you just walk away? And why don't you answer that question? Because I think there may be some people who don't understand this whole grooming process and how people get locked in. And while that sounds like a pragmatic solution, it's not realistic for somebody who's been groomed. Can you can you dive into that a little bit?
1: And, and, and let me just say, it's a legitimate question, and I love to answer the question because I hope it provides understanding to people. So this grooming process is they, they continually push the boundaries to the point where you're accepting behavior in this person that you ne- might not necessarily accept in another person. They also uh, they learn your vulnerabilities, they learn your weaknesses, and then they pretend that they're helping you and they're guiding you and they're caring for you. And so you begin to trust them to a point where you are less likely to resist. And they also created dependency on this person. So it, at some point, there there he was with me. He would say, you know, I wanted you to do these committees. If he were angry at me, he would say to me, I don't want you doing this anymore. You can't come to this meeting. You can't do this in the church, which devastated me. So they he knew how to manipulate me along with the grooming process. And we become so entrapped into this relationship as I tell people, just because there is a way out, you don't see a way out. The other thing that they do is they make it very clear that if you're to tell anyone, no one's going to believe you, and you're going to be at fault, and you're going to be blamed for what happens to me. And then they go back and forth between this, well, you know I care about you. And in, in many ways, my abuser was very kind to me in the beginning, and so I felt this obligation to him in some way. I felt the protection for him, that if I were to tell anyone, not only would I be blamed, but he would be blamed. And so it, it's a very difficult way to explain to people that it's not as simple as just walking away. Susan Forward talks about this acronym of FOG, F O G. There's a fear if you're to tell anyone, you feel an obligation to your abuser because he has been so kind to you, and then you feel guilty for what you perceive that you have done. And so those are the factors that can keep people in an abusive relationship. I truly saw myself in a black hole with no way out. That's what I saw myself and he created that in me so that I could not find a way to just walk away.
0: And I'm sure, Sandy, some people might be, I mean, I'm curious about this. How was he able to keep the secrecy of this. I mean, did anybody ever suspect? Did your mom or anybody else in the youth group say, Gosh, you know, he seems to show affection to you in a way he doesn't others? I mean, he must have been very, very effective. I, I mean, I'm, I'm presuming that he didn't treat you publicly any different than he did anybody else.
1: Well, um, you're right. And, and, and what I've learned later was when people learn my story. They would say to me, well, you know, there was that one time that I questioned, or I remember he said something to you that I thought was really odd, but none of them could take the next step to think he was doing anything he shouldn't be doing. They ignored the red flags because of who he was. Had he been a neighbor down the street, I can assure you my mom would have thought, okay, this, is, this man's spending too much time with my daughter. But because he was in the church and he was the pastor— No one thought anything of the fact that he would say, let's go on a hospital visit and we'll, you know, I want you to go with me. Well, so, you know, no one questioned that, but because of who he was. And I say to people, if if you're unsure of behavior in a religious figure, would you accept that same behavior in the stranger down the street or your neighbor or your uncle? And if the answer is no, then you need to question it within the of the pastor as well. And I think that's part of the problem. So there were red flags. The other thing is these men are very good at what they do. And so the disguise and keeping the secret is pretty easy for them sometimes because they know how to do it. And I think that altogether was one of the reasons that people didn't see. And if they did, they ignored the flags.
0: Right. Well, and I think when it's a religious figure or maybe any important figure it could even be in the business world or it could be a city leader or people automatically assume well because of their position i think they get a pass in a certain way i'm just curious a couple of things i want to ask did did this ever lead to any suicidal thoughts on your behalf sandy just being in this dark hole and not being able to escape and you can't tell anybody and the relationship is is not only is it wrong it's abusive on top of that did did you think about ending your life
1: Well, this may sound odd, but not during the abuse. But once he was caught and he was moved to the next church and he was gone for probably six or seven months, I was totally lost. I didn't know what to do without him. I spent five years with this man telling me how to behave, how to live, how to work, how to dress. And so when he left, I didn't know where to go and what to do. And he had so demoralized me that I felt so... Sick side about who I was, but that's when I probably had times when I thought, I just wish I would wake up, not wake up one morning. I did, there was one night that I, I went, we, we live, in, I live in Cincinnati and we're along the Ohio river and I walked down along the river and all I kept thinking was, I just want to walk into this water and never come out. So yes, I did have those suicidal thoughts. And um, I will tell you, uh, I had talked to him after I had done that. And his response to me back was, if you had done that, I would have to live with the guilt. If you had done that, people would have blamed me. There was no concern for me. There was no even a, an attempt to say, oh, Sandy, you shouldn't even be thinking that way. And, and you need to th- you know, get. Help. No, it was. How would this affect
0: well, you right? You were I just an object. That's all like you that. were. And he and, looked at you as yes. a sexual object. Yes. And and exactly. I think it's an important point that you mentioned. And I, I got this in the book. Just for people to understand how deep the control, the manipulation, the persuasion can be, that literally he dictated where you went, he dictated what you wore, I mean, he dictated so many aspects of your life that the control got so deep that literally there was basically very little components of your life that in some way he wasn't directing, and and I think for some people, again, that's 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 difficult to wrap their head around, but that's how deep the control can get in these scenarios.
1: Yes, and they, they're very methodical about it. They're very manipulative. It's a slow process. Pro- progressive, happen- yeah. Yes, it's very slow. And, and, and with, someone once remarked to me, well, I can't believe it from that first kiss, it took him a year to have sex with you. And I said, because he needed to be sure when he got to that point he he had me and that he knew i would keep his secret and so it's it, it, they each victim is different but they all wait until they're sure that they have got this victim within their grasp and they know they can't get out
0: well um, and i attack. think yeah and i i think it's important too for listeners to understand because again I, I i remember this part of the book that the first time that there was sexual intercourse it wasn't like um you know, hey, let's get together, and you were like, okay, hey, great, let's do it. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was a forcible situation. That matter of fact, I remember you talking about that your head, if I remember right, was I think it was under a, a counter or under a, a stereo, it was yeah, under a stereo. stereo, and so. Even during that process, it wasn't like that you were a willing participant and going, this is something that I want to do. I mean, this was this was rape. I mean, you were even in the process trying to take yourself into a a different place mentally. So I just think it's important for the listeners to understand that even when it got to that place where the control had become so pervasive that even then it wasn't. You know, again, you were a, a, a very young girl, but it, it, it was it was a rape. It wasn't just a, a give in to some guy that was, was trying to have intercourse with you either. Yeah.
1: And I would even say once that grooming process has started and they have they, they crossed the boundaries of inappropriate kissing, inappropriate touching, even if the victim near the end is saying, yes, I want to do this. He's crossed those boundaries of his pastor ministry. And so it's 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 always his fault regardless of how she responds. It's always his responsibility to maintain those boundaries. And he crossed the boundaries, creating the situation that allowed her to either agree to the sex or, as in my case, just froze. Um, it, you know, these are our pastors. These are our spiritual leaders. And they their only obligation is to behave morally and ethically. And when they don't, they bear the re- total responsibility of the behavior.
0: Well, and I would encourage listeners, too. I mean, this book is extremely compelling. And, and even in this part of the story, one of the things that really um, impacted me was that whole mental process, that mental gymnastics that you went through after this rape took place of trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and try to wrap your mind around what had happened because you were so caught off guard by it. Yeah. Something else that that I want to ask you, and this just, again, this may seem a little bit off point, but it's something I'm curious about. My wife, who was sexually abused, never told her mother, and her mother never found out until she and I were engaged to be married. And her mother carried a lot, and it wasn't her mother's fault in any way, shape, or form. Her mother is one of the greatest people I've ever known. We had an incredibly tight relationship, but her mother uh, really struggled for quite some time with... Well, I, I think in the same way some people who have a friend who commits suicide, well, it's my fault. Why mm-hmm. didn't I see you? How did I not right. see the warning signs? Did your mom or your friends or your father or your, maybe any of your siblings, did was there any of that guilt of feeling like, how did I miss seeing this? what was going on?
1: Not necessarily at the time, because I think at the time... A lot of people still revered this man. Again, remember this went on for five years. So I was 21 when it ended. So many people just saw this as an affair, that this was something. And and one of the things that he told me to tell people was that it had only been going on for a year. And I think he did that for two reasons. One— of course, he didn't want anyone to the know that age. this was age 16. But the second right. thing was, he did not want this congregation to know that from the very moment they hired him, he was sexually abusing me for five years. He was preaching on marriage. He was preaching every Sunday morning, and he was a fraud, and he didn't want people to believe. he It was easier for him to explain away, this was a mistake I shouldn't have done, it. I was attracted to her. It, it was only a year. If you say it's gone on for five years, that argument's a little more difficult.
0: To press on. Well, no so, doubt. No doubt. And, and certainly, any, I mean, there's plenty of godly people that have had an affair. I'm, there, I'm sure there will be people listening to this podcast, and but we're not talking about an affair. We're talking about no, rape. We're not. And, but and that's
1: what I think people at that point saw it as. And so
0: Well, and that's the narrative field. that he tried to play sure. based oh, on what absolutely. I read in the book. I mean, which yeah. obviously makes sense for him because uh, uh, an affair obviously is, is, is wrong as it is. So yeah, it's yeah, looked at it completely true. different than it would be uh-huh. exactly. Yeah, it makes perfect so sense. To
1: answer your, yeah, so to answer your question on my mom, um, she was more of the type, and this is very common, I think, for a lot of people, even today, is she didn't want to make an issue of it. At that point, they had decided that he was going to move to the next church. So in her mind, she was kind of embarrassed that this went on, again, seeing it as an affair. And so for her, it was... And she absolutely adored this man. She adored him like everyone else in the church did. They looked at him as a rock star. So there was also this, she also struggled with who was this man that she thought was this man and now was had an affair with her daughter. And so for her, it was more like, let's let this move on. He's leaving and we'll just move on. And that was sort of, and then she passed away before about three years after this all came out. And so for 27 years that I kept this secret, she was never, you know, she never got to hear my side of the story and what really, really did occur. Wow. Because I didn't tell anybody about this for 27 years. My husband didn't know. My family didn't know. My closest friend, no one knew except for the few people who were in the church at the time when it became public.
0: Yeah, well, and it's interesting, there was some research we did here recently, there's been numerous articles that have come out with some statistics. And again, I think a lot of this revolves around just what's taking place in national news, but um, everything from the Stop Baptist Predators to No Eden Elsewhere, Bishop Accountability, But listen to some of these statistics, and they're just amazing. 7,000 claims of sexual abuse by church staff or congregation member were reported to three insurance agencies in the last 20 years. Recently, 300 alleged child sexual abuse cases in Protestant Christian congregations took place on church grounds or in the home of an offender. Let me go on. In the average American congregation of 400 persons with women representing on average 60% experience clergy sexual misconduct. Two more here. 50% of pastors admit to using pornography and 37% report inappropriate sexual behavior with someone inside the church. And last but not least, 40% of married pastors report having extramarital affairs while serving as a pastor these are just some recent statistics that we compiled and and this is not i don't want to say this is happening on every street corner but this isn't something that never happens either and again for a place that people would consider to be a safe zone it's a tragedy wherever it happens but especially when it happens in the church you know sandy i have said for years and i'd be curious if you agree with this statement that when it comes to sexual abuse it's like a scab that never goes away. In my opinion, um, it's a crime that keeps on repeating itself. Do you agree with that? And the reason before you answer, let me tell you the reason I say that is because everybody that I've personally known, I've got a staff member that has been with me for years that I adore her. She was sexually abused. As I mentioned, my wife was sexually abused by a family member and then by someone else. And obviously those crimes took place years and years ago. But and I'm not saying that there's not been degrees of healing, but it just seems as though the people that I've met and that I know personally that have been sexually abused, it's a crime that keeps repeating. And somebody would say, well, Jay, what do you mean by that? Well, because obviously once the crime stops, you would assume that it does. But mentally, emotionally and sometimes relationally. Especially in a marriage, it's a crime that keeps coming up. I would be curious if you agree with that statement, or if your experience has been different.
1: No, that's exactly my experience. This is will always be a part of my life. It doesn't necessarily have to define my life, but I still have triggers. Um, I still have nightmares that I, you know, I can't control those triggers. I can't control the nightmares. They're not as frequent um, because my healing pro- has progressed, um, and I under, you know, it used to be I'd have a trigger and I would be. You know, anxiety filled. I didn't know how to handle it. I was afraid someone would be able to see that I'm about to fall apart. You know, now I understand why I have these triggers and I'm able to manage them opposed to trying to suppress them. I think when I tried to suppress them, it only heightened the anxiety because I was spending my energy trying to keep anyone from discovering my secret that I was hiding. Um, so it never, you know, it absolutely never goes away and it does affect you. Our lives in ways, in some ways that we don't even recognize. Church is very difficult for me still. I don't know that that will ever go away. It gets better at times, but yeah, it it is a lifelong impact on our lives. And like any wound, you know, people who have broken a leg will say, you know, well, it's never the same because when the cold weather comes, like I can hardly walk on it or I feel some pain. It's a physical pain that doesn't go away. And it can be an emotional pain that never goes away. And it is such a horrific trauma. It it, it takes away our innocence. It takes away our trust. It it, it just affects us in ways that I I agree totally with you. It never goes away.
0: Well, I think you gave a great description. And again, just thinking back to uh, this staff member that's been with me for so long and my wife, both of them, I think they would say almost identical to what I mean, just almost verbatim to what you just said that, yes, that was a long time ago. And yes, I have moved on. But I love the fact that you use this word triggers, they would say that there are certain triggers. And there are certain times that I know, in the case of my wife, she could go months and it never even crosses her mind. And then she can go through a season of something that triggered that and brought that back up. or And so and I know that even and I've talked about this in other podcasts that that some of the challenges that even that that brought into our marital relationship that obviously had nothing to do with anything that I've ever done to her. But yet not only did she suffer consequences, but our marriage did as well because it put up certain barriers, especially in the realm of intimacy. And uh, I know for me, it took years for me to even understand that. And and I, I guess probably that may have been similar to your experience as well.
1: It, it was. And, and for me, I think the hardest part for me was to keep that secret from my husband. That was that created a, a division that I couldn't be open and honest with him. And so, you know, when I'd have these moments of sitting in church when I thought I'm going to have to scream and run out of this building, I couldn't do that. I had to. And, and sexually, it didn't affect me as much on his end as because I, again, I think I compensated and knew that I had to perform and, and not because I was hiding the secret. I didn't want him to have to question. So why why did you respond that way? Right. So for me, it was it was an act of not an act necessarily because I you know I certainly enjoyed that moments those moments with him, but. I knew that I couldn't reflect back on the relationship that I had with this other person because I was afraid it would reveal something about my secret that then I would have to say, this is why I'm feeling this way. Um, certainly after I was able to tell him about the abuse, I think our intimacy became greater because he had a better understanding of me. He he was much more protective of me than he than he had been because he understood that I was I had had this hurt in my life, and I think he felt a certain protection for me.
0: Right. Well, tell us, I've got two things that I, I want to kind of maneuver into is, one, um, how did this, I don't want to call it a relationship, how did the abuse stop? How did the break finally happen between you and this minister? And then after you answer that, I'd be curious to know what finally led to, what was the catalyst that led to you coming out and revealing what happened. So let's, let's start with how this abuse stopped. How did you finally break free from this wolf, this predator?
1: Well, two people in the church became suspicious and followed him one night and found us in a hotel room. At that point, he was called in by the elders. I don't know what version he gave, but whatever he told them, there was a vote that they should still keep him. But one man, one elder, pounded his fist on the table and said no he has to go he was given a going away party he was sent to a church in tennessee and where he once again committed sexual misconduct and at that point i was called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior i was to leave the church and i i can just tell you i was devastated
0: of course that added even more pain because now really you're being you're being blamed exactly
1: yes i'm being rich And I love this church. And he was being told that he could be forgiven. He was being told that, you know, it was okay for what he had done. I was the one that could not be forgiven. I was told that I was not worthy to worship in that church. And I've often said the response of the church actually was probably more devastating to me over the years than the actual abuse, because what they did to me was horrific. Now I will tell you that I did go back to this church 27 years later and requested a meeting with the elders. And not that any of them were there at the time. Some of them were members of the church. But I wanted them to know the truth. And I wanted them to take responsibility and accountability for how they treated me. Because what they did to me was wrong. It was just as wrong as what he did. They abused me in a different way. I agree. And they were very, very good about letting me come and talk to them. They responded in a very appropriate way. They welcomed me back into the church if I ever wanted to come back. And so that that was really good for my healing, be, to be able to go back to that church and say, here's what you did and here's what was wrong, and I want you to acknowledge that. I also confronted my abuser. I don't know if you got to that part. Well, of the book, I don't want to get
0: there just yet. So okay. what was the impetus that made you finally say, you know what? I, I've got to come out with this story. There's got to be an accountability. I mean, what led to that? I mean, was it because, well, go ahead. It's
1: in the first t- chapter in my book where I am driving to one of my daughter's golf tournaments and it's in Tennessee. And I happen to pass the sign on the expressway to the town to where he moved after he left our church. And it was an absolute watershed of a moment for me. I was overtaken with emotion. I I couldn't hardly drive on the expressway. I I pulled off to the side. I remember getting out of the car and these semis are going by and I, I didn't even know where I really was. I grabbed under the hood of the car and I sat by the side of the road and just sobbed. And this was a trigger that I knew was not going to be able to be suppressed. That somehow whatever was happening to me at this moment, I was going to have to deal with it. So I spent really about two or three weeks just agonizing over what to do. I didn't tell anyone. I was just a mess. I finally told my best friend, she was very helpful in how I was going to process this. And so it was through all that and some counseling and talking to some of my other friends. I don't know how your wife would feel, but I always say girlfriends are your first go-to. So I told my girlfriends first before I would ever think about telling my husband, because they were the ones I knew I could trust that would never judge me, even though I knew that was the case with my husband I didn't want to risk him looking at me saying, why couldn't you trust me to tell me? Or would he see me different sexually? Even though mentally I knew that, and in my heart, I couldn't, I, I was so afraid of how that would change our relationship. So I told them first, and that was the beginning of my healing process and how I was going to process this whole mess yeah. that I was in. And well, it was for the first time that I recognized... I didn't have an affair with a married man who was my pastor. I was sexually abused by someone I should have trusted in the safest place on earth.
0: Right. Yeah. And we won't get into it. Listeners will just have to read the book. But I remember when you started dating your husband and he even tried to end that relationship and put a big big guilt trip on you about that as well. So let's talk about, why don't you give us a, tell our listeners about when you were finally able to confront your abuser.
1: Well, it, it took me probably six or seven months into this healing that I, I had this overwhelming desire that I had to look at him and say to him, you had no right to do what you did to me. I didn't know if he was still alive. I had lost total contact with him, but I hired an investigator. I found that he was a minister in a church in Alabama, um, and I, I picked you know, I picked October 24th to confront him. My investigator said, this is the date she's going to meet him with your Church. He refused to meet at the church, but the interesting thing about this, and it's kind of an ironic thing, the date that I picked, which was totally random, October 24th, is Minister Appreciation Day, so it was kind of ironic that I picked that date to confront him, and even now, I go into a Hallmark store, and it's around that date, I'll see all these cards for pastors, but anyway, meeting him was not as easy as it might sound. Um, Even though I felt the need to do it, I was petrified, and part of it was, I thought I would go into that room and I would be sixteen all over again, and he would try to control and manipulate me, which he tried to do. But I was strong enough at that point to know what whether I should look at him and know that he was telling me the truth or he was trying to con me. And
0: did you meet him just by yourself, or did somebody go with you? No,
1: I took no, 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 no. And I I tell victims if you ever never confront your abuser by alone. And in fact, not even I also tell them if you're going to reveal your abuse to church leaders. I I always say, take someone with you. Don't ever do that by yourself. But no, I had my husband, and I had my friend who was a counselor, and then I had a friend of mine who was at the church at the time. And I think one of the things that made it easier for me, and many victims don't have this, is the fact that he couldn't deny it. He'd been caught. So it wasn't like he could sit in this meeting and say, okay, this was 27 years ago. I don't barely remember this person or know she's making this up. I, I had the assurance, at least, that he couldn't deny it.
0: And tell our listeners why he couldn't.
1: Why he couldn't deny it?
0: Right. Because at well, this—go ahead. It,
1: it was public knowledge. Right. He got caught. And so—and now, his his current church had no idea of his past. No one in his congregation had any idea of his past. Um and that, that worried me. I mean, that, that that frightened me. And so one of the things I said to him was that, you know, this is not appropriate, that your church is unaware of this. I mean, I became a victim because my church chose to cover up his first victim. And so I told him I was going to write 11 letters to the 11 elders in his church and just explain who I was, what he had done, and why I felt it was inappropriate that he remained in ministry. Mm-hmm. Um and they responded this
0: way. Well, hang on. Before they you did, get there, was he contrite at all? I mean, with you know, there your husbands there with you. I mean, did he—what What was his response to all this? I mean, was he r- jaded? Was he coarse? He was,
1: no, he was very—he um, went on to explain why he was the way he was. He would had an alcoholic father. He basically played the victim. He, he made excuses as to why he did what he did. He said that in therapy he'd been identified as a sexual addict. Mm-hmm. Which at that point, I looked at his supervisor and wanted to say, and this is appropriate? I mean, you have this man who's just admitted he's a sexual addict and he's your pastor and no one in the church knows this. He also admitted that there have been, in his words, many, many victims along the way, not all of them minors. So he had a a history of this behavior, and yet he continued in ministry, and he felt that was appropriate because he had somehow changed and that he was a different person. Well, that may be true, but by his own actions, he's lost that privilege of ministry, and that's what I said to him, that this was, he didn't belong in ministry. But his supervisor told me that They believed in the changing, God-changing people, and that this happened 27 years ago, and it had no validity to who he was to today. Wow. I also think it's interesting. My husband's point to him. My husband did say some things. One of my points to my my husband, they, was, why is it that there's never been any effort to help the victims in all of this? All of the, the counseling and all of the support has gone to the abusing pastor. Not once did anyone ever reach out to me and say, we want to be sure and help you because we know that this is trauma that was created in your life by this pastor that we now have hired.
0: Well, so tell us where he's at now. Is he actually still in a pastorate somewhere? Or, or? Up,
1: until, up until probably five years ago, he was still the pastor. I think he's semi-retired now, but he, he, he eventually retired given... Um, Again, a send off with a large party. He was given an honorary ministry pin. I, he's still a, he's got he's still in good standing within the denomination of the Disciples of Christ. So basically, no consequences.
0: Wow, that's unbelievable that he's still able to that he was able to continue on. Sandy, and
1: that's the fault of those in charge. Of no
0: doubt, no doubt, no doubt. And and that, again, goes back to what we discussed earlier, that there's been a lot of whitewashing, that mm-hmm. denominations and churches are saying that they're going to do everything to, to, to change the way things have been. Sandy, what what should a person do? I mean, do you have resources? What do you recommend for somebody who, I mean, do you have I know there's no just quick answer, but I mean, for somebody who's going through abuse or has been through abuse, uh, do you have resources available or or maybe kind of a form?
1: Well, I do, but one of the things I want to make clear to victims is, and, and I know that this is something you've probably gone through with your wife, but victims need to know and hear it over and over and over again that it's not their fault, that what was done to them. This didn't just happen. It was done to them and in no shape of form is it their fault you know victims and I was one of them I would look back and think why didn't I say no why didn't I do this why didn't I say this we're powerless right we're powerless we don't have the voice and so I tell victims you did the best you could with the coping skills that you had at the time so that's the first thing you know it's not your fault the second thing I tell victims is you need to educate yourself learn what the terms grooming mean. Because once I started reading everything I could, the light bulb came on that I could see, you know, that time when he did such and such, that was just a setup for him. The time that he said something to me, that was a grooming that he was doing for me. So I, I think it's so important for victims to understand what manipulation means, what love bombing is, gaslighting. Once you see that, it's then easier for you to let go of any guilt and shame that you may be carrying. And then, if you're being abused or you have been and you've not told someone, it's so important to find someone to trust that you can tell. And if your abuse happened within the church, I suggest not telling someone in the church right away. There's the possibility that they're going to be more sympathetic, at least somewhat, to the pastor. They may want to cover it up. They may want to try to silence you. So Tell someone, and I, I, when I say that, I say that understanding how difficult it is to tell someone, because I spent 27 years hiding my abuse because I thought it was my fault and I was afraid of the reaction of people. So I understand how how difficult that is, but I think it's so important to tell someone. So some of the books that, that were helpful to me, um, well, certainly I think reading my book would be helpful because. The reason I wrote the book was to tell my story in such a way that it would resonate with a victim to understand, oh, I'm not alone, or this happened to her somewhat the same way it happened to me. And so hopefully by reading my book, it will give them some hope that healing is possible. The other book that I think is so important is called Something's Not Right by Wade Mullen. He, he goes into great detail of how predators work. And then the next book would be Victim to Survivor by Nancy Pauling. And she gathered victim stories and put them in a book. And I, I think, again, we draw strength from hearing each other's stories. We can uh, find ways in which we can resonate. And that helps us in our own healing. I don't know if you've heard of Jimmy Hinton. No. Um, but he wrote a book called The Devil Inside. He has a podcast. Highly recommend listening to his podcast to your listeners. He turned his own father in for abusing children within the church. And his dad is now in prison. A very compelling story. So those are just some of those. I do have other references in the back of my book. There are websites. I've Preacher Boys website and their Facebook page is very good. It's called Preacher Boys. Those are just a few. Yeah, those, um, are, those
0: are great. And I love what you said about how important it is to tell somebody. And I know when my fiance told me about what had happened she had never told anybody and I told her that she has to come out and she was Mm -hmm. terrified of the thought of that number one are people going to blame me number two he's going to lie if he does admit it he's going to say that I was the one responsible of course none of that would even make sense especially at the age that it happened but there was a, a big fear and and initially, my wife was not going to be willing to do it. And the the only thing that changed her mind was the fact of, regardless of how it's perceived by the rest of the family, even if I lose family over it, I must do it to prevent it from happening to other people. And so that was really the the, the catalyst. That was the turning point, the tipping point that caused her to go ahead and, and come out with the story. And I won't get into that, but...
1: Uh, well, what a gift you gave her. What a gift you gave her to accept her and, and not question, you know, what a gift. I mean, that you were able to give that to her and to support her.
0: Well, regrettably, just- I mean, and, and, and I, she did the right thing and she did come out. And again, I won't get into it today, but some of the fears that she had of, of course, he didn't admit it. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, it didn't work out the way that she had hoped it would, but at least it did put a stop because of the allegation alone, it put a suspicion around him that was going to make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to try to do anything like this again because in the back of people's mind, there's always that questioning and wondering. Well as we get near the end of this, Sandy, I know you're a strong believer. I know you you love the Lord and um, you know at the end of the day as a full-time evangelist, to me the starting and ending point is always the gospel. And, uh, you know, of course, it's difficult to sometimes reconcile why God allows certain things to happen. I'll look at your story and as tragic as it is, I thank God that you're doing what I believe is a biblical mandate and you're taking the pain that you went through and you're using it as a tool to help other people. And I think that's one of the main things that when God does, certain things do happen that don't make sense. And we wonder why that God wants us to use that to do the very thing that you're doing. But I would ask Sandy, just as we kind of pull this thing together, what role has your faith played? I mean, in your recovery and your healing, I mean, there's going to be people that are listening to this podcast that they don't come from a, a faith background. Maybe they don't even have a relationship with the Lord maybe they do not think God knows their zip code. And yeah. what would you say to those people, Sandy, who, are non-believers, or maybe even believers, that are trying to go, trying to, trying to pull it all together and trying to make sense of a tragedy like this.
1: Well, it is difficult when your abuse has happened in the church because we we do have to question, you know, where was God? I never blame God. I, for me, it. I always had a strong faith that this wasn't God doing this. This was an evil individual who had no relationship with God. And so for me, I I somewhat could separate them. The hardest part for me is the actual going to church itself. Um, And that's getting better. But it's so many triggers for me to sit in church. I didn't pray for 27 years. I can now pray. I I actually, you know, got my faith was restored, but in a different way. I, I don't trust the way I did. You know, I don't walk into a church and just assume that this pastor, when he's speaking to me, is a godly man necessarily, and who wouldn't do anything? I don't. I don't look at them in in a way of saying, okay, they're all evil. But I, I'm more. I'm just not as trusting as I once of was. Course. And I think that's a good thing in the sense that we need people in the church who are paying attention to this kind of thing. And so, my faith is very important to me. I, I'm very um, strong in my faith. It's. I think it's the actual attendance of church that hurts. And, and let me just say this to, to people. Of faith, who are dealing with a victim who's been abused in the church, I want them to, to remember and be aware of many of the things that you might find comforting, like prayer, Bible reading, attending church. Maybe triggers for victims, and so I often say to someone, if if you're dealing with someone who's been abused in the church, maybe instead of saying I'll pray for you or let me pray with you, ask if it's okay because. That indicates to that victim that you get it. That, okay, prayer, they might, they understand that prayer might be hard for me. Many victims talk about how their abusers prayed with them after they had sex with them. So they prayed that they, that God would keep them from doing this again. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's in, intertwined in sexual abuse within the church. They use scripture against us, they tell us it's God's will. I was told he was just like David who worked through David in spite of his faults and his sins. And so it's important for believers and people of faith to be aware that victims of clergy abuse are more sensitive to those kinds of triggers.
0: But you would say undeniably, though, that your faith has played a huge role in your healing.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I could not have done this had I not had my faith. In, in God, and I could not have done it if I didn't be able to take pick my Bible up finally after 27 years and read it. I mean, I I had mourned the loss of my spiritual life. I mourned it. I I missed the prayer. I missed all of those things that meant so important to me at, at one point in my life. I mourned that loss. And once I was able to see what was done to me and that this was not my fault. This was not something created within the church by God. It, it brought me back to my faith and. Right.
0: Well, and let me quantify, too, when we talk huge. about faith, we're not talking about just a generic faith that good is going to happen or a generic faith in some invisible God. We're talking about a faith that is rooted in the fact that there's a man named Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago, who rose from the grave, who's alive and well, and who loves sinners and who died on the cross so that people could have a relationship with him. And at the yeah, end of the I, go ahead.
1: It's exactly right. I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, that, that is exactly right. And I will tell you, the verse that hit me. That, that, sent, that said to me, this is your calling to do this. Because one of the things I will tell you, and I know we have to end, but one of the things that I I was so sorry for throughout those 27 years was I, I was so active in the church at one point, and now I was not involved in the church at all. And I kept thinking, I'm going to get to heaven someday, and I won't hear the word, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Well, now— this is my, this is what God has called me to do. This is what I, my ministry. And the verse that I, I go back to is that God comforts those in order to comfort others.
0: And Second that's Corinthians one, me. three and four. Yes. Absolutely.
1: He, he comforted me and said to me, I'm going to heal you. Now you go out and you help others heal. And that's my mission. And that's what God has done for me in my life. He's taken this horrible experience and showed away way that I'm just, you know, help others understand what was done to them, help them have a path to healing. Because I've often thought, what if I'd heard someone's story when this my abuse was happening? Would it have given me the courage to come forward? Would it give me the courage to tell someone? I didn't know that this was happening to anyone else. And so our stories are important to share. And I, I applaud your wife for being able to share her story because it is not easy to do.
0: Yeah, well, and I love the fact that you used the reference of 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. I'll just quote it. I memorized it years ago. It says, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, and the God of all comfort. And so people that are struggling, first of all, know that God is a God of comfort. And then the next verse, verse 4 says, Who comforts us in all of our tribulation, so that we may be able to comfort others with the same comfort we ourselves have received from God. In other words, the bible's saying that not only does god want to bring you comfort but he wants to bring other people's com- other people comfort through the healing that you yourself got sandy it's been great having you today again the title of our book is let me pray p r e y upon you sandy do you have a website as well
1: i do it's just my name so it's www. and it's s a n d y Phillips. p h i l l i p s And then Kirkham, it's K-I-R-K-H-A-M. So it's just SandyPhillipsKirkham.com. I also have a Facebook page as well. My book is available on my website or it is available on Amazon. And again, those other books that I mentioned I think would be a, a great help as well.
0: Sandy, it's been great having you on today. Just love how you are, again, doing what the Scripture says and you're taking your experience to bring healing and hope to other people. Thank you so much for being a guest. Listeners, again, this book is, it is something else. It is very compelling. I must be honest and say that parts of it are very disturbing, but yet at the same time, it's a book of hope. I encourage you to go out and get it. Sandy, thanks again. It's been great having you today.
1: Thank you.